how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Are we good? Hi. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> Um, so today we are talking to Mark Drax. Mark is a male vulnerability and addiction recovery coach, and he has turned his experiences with early trauma and addiction into a coaching practice specifically aimed at helping people apply addiction recovery tools in a realistic and sustainable manner. Mark specializes in helping men identify and break dysfunctional patterns of sexual behavior, bridging the gap between treatment and life. His goal is always to help Clients replace addictive secrecy with healthy, nurturing pursuits to discover and reclaim our true and original self. Oh, yay! Thanks. Hey, Mark. <laughs> A very, very good day to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, so, Mark and I met at a conference last year, and it was probably the most authentic and wonderful moment I had with another male colleague chatting with you and connecting with you and hearing you talk so honestly and vulnerably whilst maintaining a professional head too. You are amazing. I adore you and sing your praises widely. Hello, Mark. You're very kind. I'm glad your listeners can't hear me blushing. So where are you, where are you calling in from today, Mark? I basically I'm in a home I moved to from I moved out of London last year. I have a lovely new home near Woking, southwest of London. Lovely. Where is Woking for any of our Americans? <laughs> American listeners, we are about twenty-five miles southwest of London, heading down a motorway called the A3. Absolutely. Woking. What's Woking famous for? I'm not even sure. You you might not want to go down this path. It has something to do with Prince Andrew. Okay. We're moving away from Prince Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Andrew and a pizza establishment. So okay, that's fabulous. Woking became famous for this year. Before that, I don't think it was famous at all. <laughs> right. Okay. Poor so Woking. mysterious. <laughs> cool. Into your mysterious uh, pizza, pizza prince debacle. Um, so we often start this podcast by asking our guests how they identify. So for instance... Hello, my name is Louise. I'm a recovering cocaine addict and a feminist submissive. I identify as she, her, and um, yeah. My name is Mark, and I am a. I, I have. I, I like to say I have sex addiction, and we, maybe we can talk about that. I tend not to say I am a sex addict. I don't have a problem with facing that fact, but I certainly have it, and I'm in recovery for it and have been since I discovered I was and had it and had this issue in 2004. I present as he. I have, in my 52 years, tried pretty much everything. Everything that walk, walks on two legs, I hasten to add, and is living. Uh, and I... <laughs> 
course. <laughs> just, just to be sure, not to clarify that one. <laughs> and I love the concept of androgyny. I I try to when I help my clients, I don't even necessarily think in terms of he and she. I like the concept of of, of, of a fellow human being, because human beings come in so many shapes and colours these days. So he and she doesn't bother me. In my past, I've had sex with both. But today, I'm certainly comfortable presenting as a heterosexual male, but very relaxed around men. Excellent. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. So could you start off by telling um, and talking a little bit about your background in terms of the messages you got about sex and sexuality in your youth? Certainly. Good Lord. My youth, I was born to two very Victorian parents, father, ex-military, mother, a wonderfully obedient Victorian wife. And the rules and regulations of our family were such that there was the good old no sex before marriage. Sex wasn't really even talked about. My father sat me down before I went off to um, public school, which in, in America, for Americans means actually private school. I won't go into that, but call it a private high school. And I went off to that and he sat me down and told me that I, he, I shouldn't masturbate in front of other people. And that was about it. And it is <laughs> look back, so specific. It was just hysterical. One of my other brothers uh, was confronted by my father, who said to my this brother, "Oh, I don't know much about sex. If you want to know about sex, you should talk to a doctor." And my brother said, "Well, in that case, Daddy, why don't you talk to a doctor?" And so it's a, a rather <laughs> wonderful family legend. I wasn't there, but it sounded good. So yeah, I grew up in a situation whereby sex was not talked about. It was frowned upon. Uh, the whole concept of having sex out of wedlock, especially to my dying father, was completely verboten. So it was very repressed, and my sexuality was very repressed. I today love, you, my, your viewers can't tell, but I've got hair past my collarbones, which uh, some people are jokingly calling me Gandalf these days because it's long and grey, and I love it. But my mother used to, in her dying years, which she died on the 22nd of February last year, she got very upset with me growing my hair out because she thought I looked like a woman. Not many of my friends think I look like a woman. Seeing a man of six foot eight looking like a woman would be hard at the best of times. But because it wasn't the perfectly parted haircut, the cropped back and full back and sides, whatever, she couldn't deal with it. Nor could my father. My father loathed it. If you came down to breakfast having not shaved, he sent you back to your room to shave. It was, it was a strange upbringing very controlled, very, love was very conditional. So the whole concept of sex to me was pretty much, I, I, had, to, I had to figure it out for myself. So of course, bearing in mind there was no internet when I was a child, there, was, there, there were certain pornographic materials you'd get hold of if you were clever, because even that wasn't easy. So learning about sex for me was, was not easy, actually. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for being so transparent about your upbringing it doesn't sound like it was easy at all <laughs> it wasn't easy but to, it's one thing i want to emphasize at the, right at the outset and i do this in the workshops i present and with all my clients i am not sitting here today in my 50s in any way whatsoever blaming my parents for anything yeah certainly i had some interesting times as a child i was very badly physically abused at times and mum and dad didn't give me a provide with me with the ideal emotional support because they're damaged too. They're damaged from a world war, from some very, from some even more autocratic parents. 
So if you if you want to blame, how far do you go back? Parents, grandparents, great grandparents. So I've, that's done. I'm past that. I, I, I lovingly hold them accountable and will share things that I think they might have done or not done, which certainly contributed to my sexual addiction, my dysfunctional acts, uh, patterns of sexuality through most of 50 years. But I do not want to sit here and blame them. Awesome. Amazing. That sounds like <laughs> healing. Um, Thank you. So, so um, you... you began this conversation by talking about having sex addiction. So how did you evolve from kind of like, you know, having not a lot of information or resources surrounding information about sex to, and sexuality to uh, discovering the joys of it, perhaps via a, an addictive relationship with it? What a beautiful question. I, I was being, so for the first 10 years of my life, I was very badly beaten by my first nanny between the age of zero and four. So that left me traumatized and frightened. I became a very, very angry little boy. I had a foul temper, which some of my family uh, decided on regular occasions to, to enjoy as poking me for sport because I would fly off the handle and explode at the slightest provocation. I then got sent away to, to a boarding school aged eight where I was ritualistically tortured for about three years. And I don't use that word lightly, but I do use it intentfully. If I described in detail some of the things that were done to me aged eight, nine, and ten, I think you'd probably agree it was torture. So, I mean, the, the, the two masters that, that, that abused me, they're dead. The police confirmed that through something that happened to me about two years ago. We, we, we don't need to go down that path. But suffice it to say, had a, had a pretty rough time. I was at a boarding school, and aged 11, there's a wonderful old expression in the, in the mental health world which says that neurons, neurons in our brain, neurons that fire together have a nasty tendency to get wired together. So there I was receiving pain from the outside world, living a very frightened life. And aged 11, at a boarding school, lying, it was, a, it was a summer evening, I remember it very, very well. I won't describe it in graphic detail because there's no need, but let's just suffice it to say that was the night, lying on, on a bunk bed in, my, in that school's dormitory, when I discovered that touching myself took away all the fear and pain. Not forever, but for whilst I was masturbating, it felt euphoric but i can look back now i can remember that night today age 52 and i was 11 i can remember that night like it was yesterday it's weird i have certain i have weird memories for certain things that have happened in my life and i know damn well that that night set in motion a pattern which changed my life because i learned that night that i could go into my own bubble i could literally put my hands on myself pleasure myself and in that bubble i was safe I was, I, was, I was creating a, an ever-growing world of secrecy in which I felt I was in control. It was my, my perception of control. Of course, it wasn't control. In fact, I was getting more and more out of control, but I didn't know that at the time. So that is where I now believe I linked sex in some form to pain. And the rest, you could say it's history, because I then went through my teens Obviously, masturbation became compulsive. I was using it, and I emphasize the word using it regularly, two, three, four times a day, right the way through my teens. And then, of course, I lost my virginity at age 17 to a wonderful, wonderfully gentle, kind lady. And it was such a beautiful experience. She knew it was my first time. That, that of course, escalated my interest and my knowledge of sex to a whole new level. So suddenly, it wasn't... I wasn't good enough to just touch myself. Now I needed, I needed stimulation. 
And then, and through all this time, I was looking at, I was looking at growing amounts of, uh, of magazine-based pornography. Had my stash at school. And that led me to, that got me to a point whereby I knew that my, the one place I could retreat was sex, basically. So that's how it came to pass. I'd learned that sex could take away the pain of life. But like any addiction, and if you want to relate it to alcohol, to make it very clear, alcoholics start off by being satiated with one glass. And then that's not enough. So they go to two glasses. And then two glasses of wine isn't enough. I and mean, they might try a thimbleful of whiskey. And then a thimbleful of whiskey isn't enough. They move to a glass, etc., etc. And it escalates. Well, sex is exactly the same. You start off that night, aged 11, masturbating once, and by my 20s, I was using sex, I was seeking out, um, I was seeking the underbelly of London, and I discovered a place where I could go, or a type of place where I could go, where I finally felt free, and that was the underground sex club scene of London. So you can see the escalation was pretty, pretty steep and pretty severe, so by my mid-20s, I was regularly going to um, sex clubs, fetish clubs, uh, at least once a week, and doing it all in utter secrecy. Because 25 years ago, you did not tell people you were going to a fetish club. Today, <laughs> rubber and latex is on every fashion, fashion catwalk in, 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 in the world. But back then, you did not tell anybody about this. And it seems super interesting that, you know, it started out as like what sounds like a very efficient and effective self-soothing technique, much like my early cocaine use. But, you know, I think a lot of what we do in, in these conversations and in these conversations is try to like dispel shame around whatever sex practices one finds is, uh, that are healing and, and healthy, um, whatever that looks like. Um, so it sounds like, you know... It, from from this seat at least that um you know like sex clubs are are engaging in kind of bdsm or fetish behaviors sexually in of itself is not an issue but it it sounds like yours your experience with that was really entrenched in shame um so so that's secrecy happened. yeah um louisa such a such deep perception thank you I feel very safe with you too it's comforting it's it was the issue, funnily enough, and, and I can only talk as openly as I can today because I've done a fair bit of self-exploration in the last two years in particular. What I now know looking back, because for long, when I first fell over in 2004, thanks to the con confrontation of my then-girlfriend, who was also in recovery, and she saw what was going on, she confronted me and busted me, and I fell into a treatment center. But at that point... It was uh, the early the early protocols, early early processes of recovery helped me identify the fact that yes, I went to a boarding school and I had some rough times, but it didn't get into the there wasn't the experience of the facilities in those days to really dig into trauma. So it was yes, I'm an addict. Yes, I'm a sex addict. Yes, I've gone to these clubs. Yes, I've just got to stop going to these clubs. Kind of like you've got to stop drinking, and there was still kind of the abstinence model was prevalent and it helped but it didn't help nearly as much as what I've learned in the last two, three, four, five years in particular. What I now know is that looking, looking back, what I was actually seeking was to be seen, wanted, and adored. In other words, to attach to other human beings in a way that felt good. And guess what? That is 
all the things I did not get from either parent. I was handed to an abusive nanny that from, from the womb. I didn't breastfeed. I wasn't held by my mother. I know these things. That nanny then beat me and abused me. And I have two witnesses in the, in the form of two cousins who have suddenly appeared in my life and testified to this. So it's not even as if I'm dreaming this. I know this is all fact. My father was was the work was was the was the worker of the family. He ran, ran the family, the family business, the family farm. So I didn't see him much at all, and you just respected him and let him get on with his life. So I had zero. My therapist has helped me realize, you know, there's various different styles of attachment. He has helped me realize I had no attachment, zero to either parent. So that left me utterly bereft of feeling seen, heard, and wanted and adored. So of course, what better place? to get yourself seen and wanted and adored by taking most of your clothes off, putting on something pretty racy and parading around a fetish club. And I, well, of course, it gave me everything I wanted. And I, can, I could describe in, again, in graphic detail, the very first club I went to in Putney. I happen to name it because it's long gone now. It was called Club Whiplash. It was in Putney in London, which is southwest Londonish. And I can still remember the euphoric feeling of walking down the stairs of that club that very first time I ever stepped into a club, taking off my clothes, standing there wearing some, some, some sort of racy leotardy type thing. And within minutes, I was spotted by a woman who came up and said, wow, you look amazing. And there it was. So that was as you, that was as important a moment in my life as learning to masturbate age 11. Suddenly, I got the adoration I, I never had. I got seen. I got wanted. And of course, and again, the rest is history. I then plumbed the depths of that world, desperately seeking to be seen and wanted. Sex, ironically, the actual intercourse was not the goal. In fact, it very seldom happened. Just being in an atmosphere being seen, feeling free to express the very feminine part of myself without fear of castigation from my father or teasing from my brothers or my, my, my Chelsea boy and girl, Chelsea girl type friends who really wouldn't understand this supposedly macho British country gentleman, six foot eight guy dressing up as in what, what could arguably call women's clothing. So mm. in, I did it because I had such a burning desire to liberate parts, parts of myself I, I had crushed, I had had crushed, and then chose to suppress for up to that point two decades. And it came flooding out. And it continued to flood out for the next three decades until, well, I mean, until, well, arguably, I mean, it still does. I mean, I'm, I'm still very comfortable. In fact, today I'm even more comfortable with my sexuality and my femininity than I ever had been. So you could say it's now, it, it, the flood has stopped. Now I'm just settled with it. and I don't have to hide it anymore. So I hope, that long answer, but that's how, it, that's how debilitating, and of course it became so debilitating because I had to do it. So I would go seeking prim, proper, lovely, lovely girlfriends and girls that I knew my mother and father would, would like on my arm when taking them home to mommy and daddy. But behind their back, I was going to these clubs, getting what I also needed to feel truly myself which I didn't feel safe enough to express with a girlfriend on my arm in front of my parents or in, let's let quote, polite society, for lack of a better expression. Hmm. Wow. And so when did you decide that you wanted to give back and help people with being a coach? How did that, um, all of those experiences after kind of, I did you go through 12-step recovery? 
Yes. Or you went to treatment. Absolutely. So, the, so I went into fell into a treatment centre on the eighth of July two thousand and four, having almost killed myself the night before, and was in a bad space. I I'd been left by my then girlfriend. I'd come to realise I had a massive problem. I went into rage about my my father sending me to those schools, not caring about me, and it was a very bad time. So I've been in recovery, and of course the early early recovery for me from 2004 right way through 2000 for the next almost decade was very much 12 step based. Yes, so that's what I'm totally familiar with. I have been attending SAA, which stands for Sex Addicts Anonymous, since 2004, and I still do, and I still love it, and I still believe in it. I don't, I don't actually think 12 step recovery is always enough. I think for some people it works, and that's great. But if I had a dime for every man I've heard in an SAA meeting sitting there after two, three, four, five years in those rooms, angry, sitting there saying things like, oh, God, I'm just so fed up with this. I'm pissed off. If I could take a pill to get rid of this, I would. I'm just, I wish it would, would just leave me. I, I can't control it. And, of course, the irony is the more you fight it, the more it grips you. And I have heard a lot of angry men in those rooms. I've heard a lot of people struggling to get recovery. I think the whole concept of recovery, one of the things that the 12 steps I don't think does a good enough job of is truly explaining quickly enough in the, when you come into the rooms, when you fall over and f- start seeking help. Someone needs to sit down with you and really explain what recovery is. And I think that's a fundamental question to getting better. Because if you're just plowing the 12 steps like a good little boy and doing and, and doing and, and saying yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, to your sponsor, but not really curiously and, and with interest digging into where the problem started, if all you're doing is trying to suppress it and stop it, like, like the chemical addictions, then, of course, we have a problem. Because behavioral addictions... You need anorexics have to eat. Exercise addicts need to do exercise. Work addicts have to go to work. Sex addicts need to have sex if you are to have a healthy life. So what is healthy sex as we're talking about sex addiction? Hmm. And therein lies the deepest question. So not only if you're an addict with sex addiction, do you have to come to terms with what, what is healthy sex? But you also have to figure out what are you trying to recover? And my answer to that question is one word. It's two letters. Me. M-E. Me. I'm trying to recover me. I'm trying to recover the innocent, vulnerable, full of light little being that came into this world on the 4th of August, 1967, full of more radiant light than I, than I prob- possibly even have to this day, because that's what a baby is. It is radiant innocence. It is a beacon of shining light. And what then happens is that light gets dimmed and dimmed and dimmed and possibly even snuffed out, ultimately, if you are abused and if you are if other people pour their shame into you. And then you do things which only exacerbate your own shame and the rest is history. Mm. Does that make sense? The eternal, yeah. the eternal cycle continues. <laughs> well, and it's really interesting that you, you know, because... Uh... Sorry to out you, Rose. I think it's too late. But Rose and I are both in 12-step recovery for substances. And I think we've both had profound experiences with outside help. And kind of what drew us to want to have these conversations is that, like, while we – or I'll speak for myself. While I've had a really powerful spiritual experience kind of flourishing within the rooms, um, I found that 
kind of the we we never talked about or didn't talk enough perhaps about what a flourishing sex life meant in recovery and what kind of learn like you say like your journey to me like how I bring myself into my sexual relationships uh, instead of as you kind of yes or no sir three bags full sir like instead of kind of trying to attach to like a model that wasn't necessarily mine you know so it's really exciting to hear you talk about with such like passion and, and kind of advocacy for for the baby mark you know like especially in this way like how can I bring that person and protect that person within my relationships that's it's especially like so far our, our conversations have been mostly with women we've talked to one um other pansexual man and it, it seems like the work you've done in this area is really powerful um so again like how, how did you kind of want to give back and, and help people with coaching like when did you turn the corner in your own recovery that you felt like that was a possibility Jeanette my journey with recovery has been fascinating because I got into a rather I got onto a rather complacent plateau so I, I was in an, the relationship that got me into recovery ultimately failed I proposed to this this amazing lady and it then failed because I betrayed her so she left me and I moved on and I moved into my next relationship and that was in 2007 and that relationship lasted till 2014 and actually to date that was the longest relationship I've ever had and it was through that process with that amazing lady she was from Austria and I was running my business but also struggling especially after the recession with anger and fine enough not initially my own anger other people's anger. So 2004 through to 2008 were actually quite good years because I was getting into recovery. I had a relationship until I destroyed it. Then I moved on to a new one, which was a good relationship. And then the recession hit. And the recession brought a lot of people to anger. And my business, because it was dealing in luxury goods, suffered big time. And I started being betrayed financially i had people letting me down and i started to really struggle with the whole concept of corporate greed and i got legged over to the tune by one developer of, to a, of, by a, of over a hundred thousand pounds and when i and that basically left me feeling you know what i just don't need this in my life i was getting angry having to fight people for money my anger was coming back again after some good years earlier years, early years in recovery so in 2012 i remember sitting at my own boardroom with my second in command in opposite me having a, a, a regular monday meeting and i burst into tears and he looked across the table rather oddly not surprisingly <laughs> said mark you're right and i said no i'm not all right i'm done i'm done with this i'm done with corporate life i'm done i don't this isn't me anymore i'm not financially qualified and capable of leading this company anymore because the recession's taken its toll. This needs to be led by you, actually. And we figured out a way to start a process of me extricating myself from my own company. And on the, on, in October, the same year, I walked out the door and I gave the company to him and my staff. I literally just handed it over. I signed it away. And I walked out there. I went and sat in Kennington Park, cried my eyes out, but they weren't tears of sorrow. They were tears of relief. And in January 13, with the help of my therapist, I, start, I said to my therapist, who I was saying at the time, I said, you know, 
I need to change my life. I need to do something. I want to give back and I want to help people. And I'd got by then, so all, I'd all, I had nine years of recovery under my belt. Recovery, which I look back and realize wasn't as solid as I thought it was at the time, because there was still a lot of denial, which I hadn't addressed. And the whole trauma model was starting to surface in the whole mental health field. And I was starting, and in 2011, I actually went to a place called Onsite in America and, and spent my first time, spent my first period in treatment actually specifically tackling trauma. So that wound was finally starting to be addressed. But that was 2011. I'd already been in recovery since 2004. So that shows you, took, this whole journey of mine has taken, taken a lot of time. And now we're 2020. And I'm still learning. So I started helping, I started learning to help people in January 13. And through 13, 14, 15, I was getting, I was taking money I had earned and, and been given by my beloved parents and traveling the world to every conference, workshop, treatment center that would have me and literally giving my time away. I went to conference after conference, all the big addiction conferences in America. I started meeting people. I started meeting people. That I started. I knew I had wanted to do something to, in the in the field of sex addiction. Didn't know what. Didn't know whether I wanted to be a therapist or a psychotherapist or a. Psych, I didn't know at that stage, but I started meeting people, and I and people started saying, "You must come and, and see our treatment center." And I said, "Sure, I'd love to. Can I come and stay with you for a while?" And they said, "Yeah, why not?" So I started targeting all the key treatment centers in America, and I interned at four or five uh, through through 14 and 15. Um, and then and through all this period, I was also getting a new relationship with a lady who lived in California. So, of course, that was convenient from many on many levels. It was lovely, but it was also convenient because it meant I could go over there and see her and visit treatment centers. So that was all, that was the way of the universe. So I learned at the coalface, rather than going back to university and doing another degree, I thought I'm going to learn by actually getting out there. And, and I, I, I interned at one particular treatment center in California for, for quite a few months. So I was building all this experience. And through that time, I was observing the industry, not just what I wanted to do, but I was observing the industry, the mental health industry as a whole. And what I came to notice was that therapists, there are many good therapists, there are many that shouldn't be practicing at all, but they're also quite limited because they're very regimented. The rules that govern therapy and quite rightly so, very strict. And I thought, I don't know whether that suits me, because I love to be much more hands-on, much more emotive, much more of a friend, I suppose. And then so I stumbled into the concept of coaching. And that just seemed to float my boat. And before I knew what I was doing, I was taking my, I took my first official coaching course in January 2016. I passed that one. I then went on and did a second one in America with a place called the Deep Coaching Institute, which integrates the Enneagram and learned all about presence. So, and, and then I passed the exam and got into the International Coaching Federation. So all through, all that, through all that time, 15, 16, 17, I was learning and expanding. And then I really stumbled into the concept of coaching. And then, of course, I was all the time narrowing it down, narrowing, moving further into my niche, and eventually settled on helping men. There are two reasons for that. I am one, and I do think I finally actually understand men pretty well. And secondly, because of the sad, very sad realities of, of me, be, me being a, having a sex addiction, me having a, a checkered past, me having uh, having rage and a, a, an anger addiction and having flown off the handle in front of countless 
girlfriends. Never, I've never physically hit a woman in my life, thank God. But I've raged in front of them. I've had road rage. I've, I've, I, I've, I believe it's well under control today, but I've had some very, very dark times. So imagine I'm sitting in my home with a female client and something goes wrong because she comes on to me and my, bound, my boundaries, I believe, will be good enough to, to be able to resist the uh, oncomings of an attractive lady today. But she might go and cry rape. And what do I do then? I'm sitting in a court of law and the judge says, Mr. Drax, it's come to our attention that you've been in various treatment centers and blah, blah, blah. Do you think it was wise to have a female client in your house? What am I going to say? With my history, the, the pendulum of guilt is going to swing heavily in her favor. So I've chosen to help men because that is far less likely to happen. I have been so low at times, having almost committed suicide three times now, and come back to a point where I know I'll never need to do that again. And I can help men because I can be with men who are maybe may be suicidal. I was helping a guy who was literally on the phone threatening suicide only three or four Saturdays ago, and I've helped him find get help and get into treatment. I can be with men in a, in a way which very few therapists who haven't necessarily sat on the edge of a cliff and almost jumped off it, literally, as I did, etc. And I can hold someone in a place because I've been there. I've really, truly, finally been there. I have actually finally hit rock bottom. Sitting on the edge of the cliffs of Beachy Head, I believe that was rock bottom. And that was only two years ago. So that shows you how long it took me to crack denial. And so in the last two years, I've finally done some really good work, which included going to the Amazon and taking a journey with some shaman and, and drinking ayahuasca on the advice and guidance of Dr. Gabor Mate, who you may know of, who's an amazing, world-renowned psychiatrist who lives in Vancouver. I've got to know him, and he helped me figure that one out. So I've done such weird and wonderful things because I wanted one key thing, the truth. I wanted the truth of A, what was done to me, and I knew that boarding school and some slightly um, you know, emotionally retarded parents were, wasn't the key, wasn't the true problem. And when I finally discovered, under the influence of ayahuasca, that I was beaten by my first nanny, I finally got the truth. I was the first, woman, first person to ever abuse me was a woman. By the age of five, I was a rageaholic. By the age of 11, I learned to become a sex, I became addicted to sex. Add it all together, you've got a raging, angry man who hates and is terrified of women in equal measure, and yet knows none of this, and was walking the earth as a supposed perfect country gentleman, son of Mr. and Mrs. Drax, knowing exactly how to behave in polite society. But am I allowed to swear? Oh, fuck yeah. It's encouraged. <laughs> but, but walking around royally fucked up, and I, I, when I read your kind list of prompts and ideas and subjects to talk about, you ask uh, later on, and I'm going to answer this question now. What are some people? What 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 do people get wrong about me? Well, I'll tell you what they think. What they got wrong about me was that I was an honest, upstanding gentleman, because mm -hmm. I knew so well how to behave. I became such a good liar that I spent most of half a century beguiling people into believing I was what they wanted me to be. And I was so good at it, I even convinced myself mm -hmm. I was that person. And then until I drove to that cliff on the night of the 6th of September 2018, so full of self-loathing and self-hatred, I believed my own bullshit so well 
but I conned everybody else into believing that I was the guy, that guy, that cool, charming, six foot eight country gentleman. It's wow. been an extraordinary journey. And I, I share this today without a shred of shame because I know it wasn't mine. And I know that I absolutely deserve the joy I finally discovered. How amazing. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Woo. that's incredible Mark and I think Louisa and I well I won't speak for Louisa but for myself that you know you just described addiction so well and um it's denial process and how when you take the substance or the product away if you don't do that extra step of work you stay stuck and um I, I commend you on doing that work because so many people don't this is sadly true a lot of people don't have my privilege, don't have my money, don't have my background, don't have my, don't have people who actually do really give a shit. I've got some very, very special friends in my life. And, believe it or not, some equally special ex-girlfriends. The one who left me and triggered me, um, tr- left me wanting to kill myself in September 2018. We still communicate. She's one of the bravest women on planet Earth. And she's taught me more than most therapists combined. And I, I cherish her and I hold her in my heart and will do the day I die. But I do every woman who has tried to love me. How, how difficult it must have been for every woman that's ever come into my life, whether it's for a one-night stand or for a seven-year relationship and everything in between, who came into my life was conned into thinking that they'd found this dream man because of how I presented on the outside only to discover pretty quickly in some people's cases, they triggered that this time bomb went off in their face. And what they actually got was Mr. Hyde, not Dr. Jekyll, they got Mr. Hyde. And I spent so long hiding myself within myself, but never managing to completely hide it. And every woman who's ever tried to love me eventually triggered the time bomb because I didn't know what was behind it. Now I do, I never again have to rage at anybody, let alone a woman who's trying to rub me, and nor do I have to run from and sabotage relationships, because I now know, finally, that they're not trying to hurt me. Women are not trying to hurt me. One woman did. Sod's law, it was my nanny, the woman that was supposed (laughs) to teach me to walk, ride, swim, read, do mathematics from the age of zero to four. She She set in place a path that I followed, to my destruction, almost to my destruction. I've learned the truth. I don't have to do it anymore. So, uh, and also thanks to that last girlfriend, any any friend who is still in my life, they know exactly who I am. I can't bullshit anybody else, anybody anymore. They just look me in the eye and go, Mark, come on, what's going on? <laughs> don't go down that path. And of course I don't, but they know me so well because I was so royally exposed with compassion by this ex-girlfriend that now everyone knows me. But more importantly, I know me. Bravo. Woo. So <laughs> in your practice as a coach, why do people come to you specifically? Like you spoke a little bit about your ability to sit with men having been at the edge of the cliff on a number of occasions. And I guess like we know a lot about women's trauma around sex, or at least Rose and I have kind of been part of those conversations on a more regular basis as a result of our own recovery. But um, we don't necessarily talk about men's trauma around sex. We just kind of anticipate like social norms, you know, like men's sexuality feels like a social norm. (laughs) 
And so I'm sure that those, the trauma in that area is kind of pushed further under the rug, you know? So like what, what specifically do people come to you for? As you were asking that question, one word rose straight from my heart to my brain. It's called safety. Mm. I today know, finally, I am a safe male. And I'm not only safe for a woman trying to love me, I'm safe for men too. And my clients have many times, very kindly, repeatedly told me that they feel safe with me. And mm. I, I think there's there are two reasons for that. One is physical and one is emotional and, and sort of spiritual. So one's external, one's internal. The external element is that I am six foot eight inches tall. I'm huge for, compared to most people. And yet I'm very gentle. And today, I people can see that because I don't scowl. I don't have, I'm not harboring 50 years of very dangerous negative energy, dark matter the dark side of the force, if you want to use Star Wars parlance, that's gone. And people can see that now. And so when men come to me and when therapists and kind uh, associates within the treatment field send people to me, they do so because they know that a man can sit with me in safety. So at the very least, a man can come to me and be heard, be nev never be judged, and pour his heart out and find a safe harbour. That's the most critical start to any therapeutic or coaching relationship is to someone feel comfortable with you and then the, and the physical element of it i think and then this is based on some of my experiences with men in treatment centers where i present workshops to six men at a time i've noticed that men react they find it easy with my guidance and with the with the methodologies that i employ to get in touch with their inner children because I share my inner child. So I'm talk, I, I sh this from this huge frame comes an enormous amount of love and holding. So I, and I, I really encourage them to let their inner children out, to be seen, to, to come out in a way they were probably were never allowed to by their parents or by the schools they were sent to, whatever. So the physical element in me being so big and caring today, I think is somewhat paternal perhaps. And plays into plays in a good way into me being able to make someone feel secure and and and, and cared about. Internally, I have the ability finally to show my heart. I built walls a hundred feet tall of solid steel around my heart for most of my life. Today they are gone. I have no reason to to put up those defences anymore. So I allow my my gentleness my kindness, my, my love of softness to flow. And I think, it's, I think men see that. The therapists that send people to me know that about me because some of them have even helped me <laughs> along the road. So they know who I really am. They, they, some of the therapists that helped me know, knew who I was before I did. So they now are delighted to send, send their male clients to me because they know that they're coming to a safe port in a storm. Hmm. I think you just defined coaching so beautifully. This idea that we're we're cheerleaders, we're holding space, and we're safe harbors for people. Um, you know, and I think that's a difference as well, isn't it? <clears throat> and you described that earlier between the therapeutic and the coaching relationship. And what what an, what testimony to 
recovery to be safe for somebody else. I think that's that's the real gift, isn't it? Thank you. I think don't forget the most important thing I have to be the most important person I have to be safe for today is myself. I have I I <laughs> now the emotions flow. I've spent many many years uh, giving myself away, and it still evokes tears as it does right now because it can still provoke the memory of how much time I've waited in futile pursuits, seeking intensity as my intimacy and giving myself away in my desperate seek to be seen and wanted. So the person I have to be safest for today is me. (laughs) And how do you do that, Mark? Like, do you mind sharing? No, of course not. About that. (laughs) <laughs> there's one uh, there's another word that's just come to my mind is is trust and honesty into integrity i again spent a very sad number of years decades lost behind walls of secrecy and lies so today i take care of myself by practicing what the 12 steps talk about rigorous honesty i've spoken those words if it's a hundred, it's a thousand times in the last, what, 16 years of recovery. But sadly, I wasn't always practicing them because I was talking the talk, but I was not walking the walk and I was doing, still doing things behind women's backs and relationships because I had this never-ending fear that a woman was going to hurt me or leave me or both. Now that fear is finally gone and I know that I'm, I'm safe in the world if I keep myself safe and I keep myself safe by being completely transparent. So if someone says something to me along the lines of, Mark, I want to say, tell you something in confidence. And I go, right, well, why is it incompetent? What, what's so sec- what does it, why does it need to be secret? And I need to know that now because if it's something that's highly personal, fair enough. But if they want to talk about somebody else, I'm going to say, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to keep secrets for anybody else. I'm not going to have that conversation with you because I don't want to be, live um, a secret life anymore. I need to have a transparent life. So my transparency goes to the other end of the scale, to, what, to, to that which it hasn't done for most of my life. I've almost done the yin and the yang. My pendulum has swung so far from lying to now being needing to be com- that, I can't get away from the words, ruthless, ruthlessly honest. But it's a, it's a depth of integrity, which I share with my clients. So unlike therapists, when I'm sitting with a client, when, when appropriate, and not including any salacious detail, I'll share my story. But I'll share my story more from the perspective of how I got out of and away from a dysfunctional behavior to, to, and how I learned to keep myself safe. And so many times, that goes around the circle and comes straight back to the same thing, honesty. So now today, with friends, with family, um, I am completely open. Sometimes they don't like it. If someone asks me how I are, how I am, I tell them. I don't go, I'm fine, how are you? I tell someone how I am if they ask me the question. If someone asks me a question, I'm going to assume that they want to hear the answer. So they get an answer. And some people look at me sometimes and go, wow, wow, I, I didn't expect that deep of an answer. And I go, well, that's who I am. If you don't want to know, don't ask the question. So ruthless honesty with myself and enjoying taking pride in respecting 
the reverence of another human being such that I respect their integrity and never ever again taking people for granted because I, learn, I, I was so blinkered and so complacent that I never stopped in my active acting out to, to face the consequences of my actions. And when I finally sat in a treatment center in, in September, October 2018, for the umpteenth time, but this time it finally worked, and I listened to women describing what other men had done to them, about 35 years of consequences caught up with me. And they almost killed me. I will state that. They, I spent several months through the end of 18 uh, suicidal because I was coming to terms with decades of, of not keeping my partner, let alone myself, safe. And it was a tough pill to swallow. Whew, sounds like it. I mean, it also sounds like it was a powerful enough awakening to really put you on a track of rigorous honesty. Because I think as we were talking about that, I'm like, man, like, how do you do that? Right? Like, how do you kind of ban Like, who was it talking about? I think Elizabeth Gilbert was talking about these ideas, this idea of like integrity checks about like multiple body. No, <laughs> yeah, checking in <laughs> with the full body. And if you're lying at all ever to be able to course correct, you know, to be like, Oh, I'm sorry. That was bullshit. Actually, this is how I feel, you know, but um, it sounds like you really kind of hit rock bottom with a certain behavior and felt in, in its full form, the consequences. And that really <laughs> changed behavior. There's a lovely saying which I have found among many, which says, before you say anything, put it through a filter. Ask yourself, is it true? Is it, is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? And so I've learned to preempt everything I say, even in a difficult, potentially argumentative situation. So I no longer blurt things out and, let, and fly off the handle and let rip and and, and strike with, with passive aggression or, or worse, or, or, or really throw out spears of, of unpleasantness. I try and ask myself, even talking to you right now, what I'm saying, is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? Um, I'm very sure it's true. Is it kind? Not only to you two ladies, is it being kind to myself? Or am I beating myself up anymore? Don't want to do that anymore. And is it necessary? Yeah, I believe it's necessary because if my story can help even one other man shorten his journey from trauma-induced pain to emotional freedom and joy, then I'm doing something useful. So <laughs> that's how I try and gauge what I say these days. Awesome. We love that. So much integrity. Um, mm -hmm. And can you talk to us a little bit about what, what messages um, men receive socially about sex? Because we only have our own experience to draw on, and it sounds like you have a lot of uh, research in this area. <laughs> have you, have either of you heard of or seen a documentary called "The Mask You Live In"? Um, I, I don't think so. Okay, I feel one, like I've heard about it, one, but I don't. I'm one not to look up. It's a documentary made a few years ago now. It's made in America, so it's very American-centric, and obviously filmed in American prisons and American schools. But it goes into amazingly clear detail of the messages men get from society and how quickly and how young innocent little boys who maybe, who, who, who are all, let's, let's, let's go back even further. I happen to believe that every single human baby ever born since we crawled out of the swamps as amoeba was born innocent, 
vulnerable, bright, and deserving of love, and many other things. But those are probably the key things. But innocent, I think, is a key one, and certainly with no shame. So if you follow that to its conclusion, then by default, you must include people we today love to hate, like Hitler, for example. I actually believe Hitler was born a completely innocent, lovable, vulnerable, and deserving of love. Yes, he learned things along the way and became the monster, tragically, that the world is going to hate till it explodes. And that's a great shame. And there are many other people today who have who attract that kind of unwanted attention by their actions. But you're, I don't believe anybody is born a misogynist or homophobic or racist or anything else. I don't believe you're born these things. I think you have to learn them. So what do men learn about sex and sexuality? Well, we learn. When I run my workshops, I often on the whiteboard, draw a line down the middle, and I write men at the top of, of the left-hand column and women at the top of the right-hand column. And I then get my, my students, my, my whatever you clients, whatever you want to call them, to sing out words that they would think typically describe men and then typically describe women. And sure enough, down the left-hand column, you get words like funny, dominant, aggressive, powerful, controlling, blah, blah, blah. And then down the right-hand side, under the women, you get beautiful, um, fragile, sometimes the words as, as demeaning as subservient, uh, obedient, uh, and all those all the kind of words you would typically expect. And then what I do is I, I rub out the W-O from where it says women and move it across to put, and put it in front of men. So I swap it around. And I say to my students, what is wrong with a woman being dominant and strong and powerful? What is wrong with a man being beautiful and fragile? And of course, they can't answer with any other answer than, well, nothing's wrong with it. Hmm. And I go, right, I agree with you. But then why did you sing out all those words and why are those two lists so different? Why is there no word under the male column that is even close to describing what you just, how you describe women? We are taught by society, by our peers, by schools, and even by some parents, sadly, that to cry is to be weak. God forbid you should ever be told on the sports field to not, as a man, as a boy, to not hit like a girl or don't run like a girl or don't do, ex, do, don't do anything like a girl. Well, what is that? The moment a coach or a headmaster or a parent tells a young boy not to do anything, quote, like a girl, what is that giving? What message is that giving the little boy? is by default telling that little boy that to do something like a girl is somehow wrong or weak or both. So why are we even using language like that? And that's where it starts. We socially adapt boys to think down of women from as early as they are walking. Look at children's toys. Boys' toys are blue and shoot things. Girls' toys a pink and a baby's and nurture, and they're, they're, they're designed to help the girls nurture things, not kill them. We're, we're being pre programmed from, from the earliest days that from, from soon after birth. So, is it any wonder that little boys, not long into their life, start to cluster together, judge girls? God forbid, attack them if they're, being, if they're struggling and being traumatized at home, they become bullies and then do things as I did. 
I can remember um, bullying girls on the playground, age five and six. This is stuff I've written a manuscript, which I'm going to turn into a book of my life story. And I have had vivid and violent recall at times, especially post, post my trip to the Amazon, of things I did when I was a boy. And I can remember age five and six, running around the playground at my, my kindergarten school, lifting up girls' skirts and watching them scream and feeling powerful. I did that. Why did I do that? What was inside me? Well, of course, I now know the answer to that question. The answer is I, I was being traumatized at home by, by a beating, abusive nanny. So I already hated women and was frightened of them by the age of five. Now, okay, that's an extreme example. But then you come back from that extreme age and you look at how boys are cult culturally adapted to cling together, to not cry, to not show weakness, to, to all the crap that we still have left over from the wars and a bygone era, which is slowly fading, but it still affects us. And boys become potentially aggressive teenagers. And they then take it out on their first dates and their first girlfriends when they get into relationships and the girl in some way says something that might just remind them of what their mother said to them for the last 17 or 18 years. None of this is a coincidence and this is where I think society falls down. I've spent uh, the last five years now helping men and in my treatment centre setting where I present my workshops, if I had another dime for the number of men who when I asked them what was done to them, I get someone, one piece of the homework I get my men to do is to write out uh, their memory of the family dynamics, including punishment. Because I want to, it's a, it's a, it's a very shortcut, quick link to find out the, the nature of someone's family dynamics. Is how were you punished and what for? And when they, they, when they write their piece and come back into, into the group the following morning and go through it, they will often, usually, report of what the father did to them. But mummy is on a pedestal. Mummies are goddess. They are taught by an aggressive father, and that's probably why they're in a treatment centre in the first place, that you never argue back with your mother, you never uh, shout at a woman, you put her on a pedestal, she's God. She's, she's your goddess. She's the matriarch. So here you've got a young boy being physically abused by his father with the mother. And when I then say to them, so tell me, what was your mother doing when your father was doing X, Y, or Z? And of course, the standard answer is, well, nothing. She's perfect. And I go, really? If she's so perfect, why did she do nothing to stop it? Now, I'm not saying that she might also have been, might have been very frightened of that father, and if not even terrified, as I've heard many stories in treatment center settings. But the point is, what's happening is the, the young boy is learning that women from, from, from a dysfunctional mother, that women will sit around and take this punishment and not protect them, but they've still got to respect them. So now we have this incredible conflict in young men. They are told they've got to respect and support their mother, but inside they're bloody angry because mummy never did anything to protect them. And I've seen this time and time and time again. I'm talking at the ICAD conference coming up. It's now online. And I'm also talking at the SASH conference in October in America, also online now. I'm going to be talking at both conferences on this, on this topic because I've now done enough work in the field to witness what I believe is a core foundation reason why boys become angry at women.
and it has so much to do with their relationship with their mothers. But very few people want to talk about that because no one wants to even consider laying blame at the feet of the mother. It's much easier to lay it at the obvious target, which is so often, in my experience, the angry, some um, emotionally angry and sometimes physically angry father. But well, go for it, Rose. No, I was just going to say, I mean, you use the word blame and I think like that's where the problem lies, yeah. honestly, is because nobody is at fault here. No. And like you so clearly said in the beginning, you know, you no longer hold blame for your parents. And quite frankly, what you experienced as a child is quite awful. You'd be full within your right to kind of hold some blame somewhere. And But having done your work, you arrived at a point where you felt you no longer needed to. However, this idea that now that it's the women's fault, I can understand why that would be like, given our, given the time in history in which we find ourselves, that that's a really difficult conversation. But if we could change that word blame and just say, what was going on here? Can we just lift up a blanket of what was going on here? Absolutely. And by the way, so let, there is, yeah. Let, let me, let me, yeah. Blame, by the way, um, yes, I am aware of the yin and the yang of how I've used that word. I'm not trying, I don't want to use it literally. It's for lack of a better one. Accountability, and, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is discern what I've observed. I'm not sitting here literally blaming because any mother in a situation whereby she's married to an abusive husband who may be uh, tragically, physically abusing right. a, a child is going to be terrified. So I'm not, I'm not trying to lay blame or switch the blame. And I, all I'm trying to do is highlight an unspoken about confusion, confliction, which young boys find themselves facing by default of the fact that men are so often aggressive and women have to sit back and tragically take it. I mean, how many, you got, you both of you ladies, I'm sure, have heard countless stories of domestic violence and domestic abuse where women take it because better the devil you know than the devil you don't. The devil you don't is, being, is having the courage to leave a marriage and, and then you're out on the street. And unfortunately, this goes on in millions of homes every day. But the problem is the children are in this milieu. They're stuck. They have no choice. They've got to, they can't feed themselves, especially if they're three, four, five, six. So they're stuck between raging parents. And when they end up in a treatment center 20 years later, and I'm in, in, my, in my workshop, and they're sitting there saying, hey, daddy's the monster. Daddy did this. Daddy did it. It's all about daddy. And then I start to even question them about, well, hang on. Where was mum in all of this? I'm not trying to lay blame. I'm trying to help a, a man recognize why he might just be carrying a lot of unprocessed, unrecognized anger at women, which does have a source. And that source, whether we like to face it or not, is what the mother did or did not do in a tragically dysfunctional family. Absolutely. Or God forbid that it was the mother who was the violent one Even and the father stood by watching. Exactly. You know? exactly. I mean, I think we forget that those roles are interchangeable and I think that's why that exercise of like swapping the the genders over and then what do we look at as we're going forward in time where same-sex couples are having children like what's that going to look like as we go forward you know I think times are changing so this conversation isn't like at a stopping point it's no, it's, it's, growing. it's an evolution yeah. yeah it's morphing as we talk absolutely indeed 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 so um <clears throat> 
talking a bit about going back to sort of 12 step and things like that. And we, we've talked about this in other episodes that we get to a point in our four step where we do a sex inventory and then we form friend ideal, work ideal and sex ideal. Um, I'd be really curious to find out about you, Mark, like what does your sex ideal look like today? And how do you sort of, how, how do you show up in romantic relationships and how has that evolved? Wow. Fun question. Yeah. Three questions in one. Sorry about that. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny enough, you've, you've just used some really lovely words there. You said, how do you show up? Well, that's that's actually how I do it. I show up. Mm-hmm. I think my my problems with the past is that I haven't shown up because so let's be really painfully blunt and rigorously honest here. I have been at times in my life in bed with a partner, maybe making love to a partner with my body, but my brain has been elsewhere. So I have not been showing up. And that is that is something that was very painful to come to terms with. And it still doesn't sit comfortably to even say it to you two, but I'm not going to hide it because it's the truth. So today, what I do is I show up and I lay myself on the table. I lay all my cards on the table. Because what is the point in hiding parts of yourself you know to be true, you know to be important to yourself, and hoping that when it sort of popped out at an embarrassingly awkward moment three, four, six months into a new relationship, you hope it's going to go down well. Why not lay it out at the beginning and empower a partner to choose? Because if you say, well, look, I'm into sex on horseback or um, sex underwater (laughs) or, or being tied up and tickled or whatever it might be, if you lay that out on pretty close to day one, then you give someone the choice to go, well, thank you for being so honest with me. I'm not actually into sex on ski lifts. So if that's something that's really important to you, then I'm going to leave that with you. Now, clearly, I'm just grabbing at the f- first darn thing that comes to my mind. But there are, there are, there are, there are, there are, I love that they all involve sports. It's yeah, like, they're all like yeah, skiing or horses. Say, I mean. <laughs> oh dear. I'm probably, letting, probably opening, opening myself to way too deep without even realizing it here. But there are, many, there are many sexual practices which do get demonized. You mentioned earlier, Louis, a kink and BDSM. There's nothing wrong with that in the right environment between two people choosing to explore something a little other than the mystery position. But it is demonized and it is categorized by so many people as something that is wrong with you, is pathologized. What I do today is I try and move right away from seeing anything as right or wrong. And I just present myself as what I love. And if that happens to click for someone, great. If not, that person has every right to go, Mark, thank you. And I really love that about you. That that's that's something into you're into, but I'm I'm actually not into that. So thank you, but no thank you. So we haven't wasted any time. We haven't lied, we haven't hidden something, we've been honest, we get on with our life respecting that person, and then go and wait till someone does come into a life who happens to love um whatever. <laughs> 
Choose another sport. Okay. Choose another sport. <laughs> yeah. It's, I just, uh, and, what, and you know what it comes back to? Rigorous honesty. I mean, this whole, our, our entire conversation keeps coming mm-hmm. back to rigorous honesty. Can you show up? So when you use those words, I thought, that's it. It's just showing up. So sex today is fun because I show up. And when I'm with a partner, I am absolutely there, 100%, because I've got to know that this partner likes me, likes my proclivities, likes my kinks, my, my, the twists and turns, my knots and pieces of string, whatever it might be. And we therefore can, we, we're exploring something because we both want to do it. We're right there. We're on deck. We're looking each other in the eye. And we're, and we're really wanting it together. That's, if you can find someone who wants to do something with you, and it doesn't even have to be sex, it can be scuba diving. I happen to love scuba diving. It could be riding my crazy me mover around the countryside of Surrey. If you find someone that wants to do it with you, you are you're so far ahead of the curve. If you're having to persuade someone to do something they're not really into, yeah, they're going to do it for a while because they want to maybe get into your pants or whatever it might be. And I'm talking man to woman or woman to man. We both do it. But you know what? There's that expression, the novelty wears off. And it does. And I have been in tragically too many relationships where now I now know, looking back, that ladies were absolutely doing things to please me because they thought, sadly, that I was a good catch and that they wanted me in their life and that they could love me and eventually I might just give them back the love they deserved. But I wasn't capable of it. So they pretended to like my choices, my interests, my kinks. But they didn't really. Hmm. So today, I believe relationships will only work if you absolutely have the courage to lay yourself on the table. Empower your partner with the choice, with, with, with the ability to choose for herself or himself. And then if they then choose that, you both enter into something knowingly and there are no surprises. It's bloody hard because if you do have some particularly quirky kink and there is an enormous amount of fear that if you do express it and show it and share it, that you're going to be rejected. But I have found in my experience, finally, that ironically, if you do get honest, it's staggeringly interesting to the other person. I mean, a, a very common one, which I have certainly explored in the past, is, is cross-dressing and, and, and exploring a much more feminine side of myself. There are a lot of women who love a man to do that. But how many men, because of <laughs> society, do you think are, are, are prepared to express that side to a woman? They're terrified of it because they think, oh, that's, I can't be like you. I can't behave like a woman because you'll leave me or you'll find that a turn off. Ironically, it's the opposite. There's so well, many ironies the, in this. The, the beauty, I think, right now of this moment in, in history is the like widespread history. Herstory. <laughs> It's <laughs> the widespread like uh, dating app universe, right? Because like you can know immediately whether somebody would be interested in getting to know me, in getting to know you, and you also have nothing to lose, you know. As opposed to kind of my previous poaching skills, which would be like <laughs> to friend zone and then kind of like sidestep into like is this getting physical? <laughs> is, is instead of 
like off the bat being able to be entirely honest with somebody because I have literally nothing to lose and I already know that they're they don't want to friend zone me because we met on a fucking dating app <laughs> you know like what an amazing thing not to mention FetLife shout out FetLife.com <laughs> that like you can find anybody interested in literally anything and it's celebrated you know like it's a, it's an amazing time to be alive and sexual <laughs> You know, we can. I have at time many times in my life, I have suppressed parts of myself because I didn't, because I, because I thought I could, I thought it'd be okay. I, I'm between between 2004 when I first fell into this treatment to 2007, I went completely cold turkey on anything to do with the fetish scene or BDSM, and I tried to make that relationship work, and ultimately even proposed to that beloved lady, all while trying to suppress that deep need within myself that deep curiosity that that thing that really is a part of me well of course guess what i went to a well-known um fetish club in may of 20 uh, 2007 whilst engaged to be married and destroyed that relationship because i did it behind her back and of course it came out and it was tragic and i hurt her and i that is one of the things i would change if i could i can make amends by never doing it again but I look back at that time and realize I suppressed a part of myself and lived a complete lie for three years and even proposed to a lady imagining I could live a life suppressing that much of myself. Well, guess what? The only reason it lasted that long is because I'm, I, was, I was so good at, my, at believing in my own bullshit that I managed to convince her and her family that I was a perfect suitor and that I was good marriage material. Well, the truth is I wasn't. And I was still a liar. And I destroyed it and I hurt someone. So how many more times do people need to do that before they wake up and smell the coffee and realize that you cannot long-term suppress something which really is, a, really is an important part of you? You can hide it and do it behind someone's back, and that's going to come out. The truth rises to the water like oil above water every bloody time. It might take a year, might take 30 years, but the truth will come out and the longer you live a lie the longer you hurt somebody and ultimately yourself and is and also like what a what a sad thing to kind of not to hate some part of yourself so much that you need to try and snuff it out instead of being like oh my goodness this beloved part of myself i get to present to you as a feature not a glitch you know it's not a bug to to be into stuff if you have a partner who's equally down you know as 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 opposed to kind of stuffing and hiding away and splitting. For me, I do a lot like my kind of go-to was like just to like leave that part somewhere else and then like pretend it didn't exist. And what a painful way to live. And like, I'm so happy for you that you got to, I mean, I know it sounds like it was an arduous process, but hit bottom and get free of the, the idea that any part of you was unacceptable. Like, thank you. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So how Mark, how do you get present in your body? Like specifics. I get, I'm feeling remarkably present now. And what I did before we before we connected this evening was I sat down and I breathed. I one of the reasons What's I What's breathing? Sorry? I'm joking. I said, what's breathing? Yeah, exactly. I'm joking. Well, funny you should ask that because a lot of people actually don't know. And that, that, no real that, talk. That real is talk. an ironically funny question. Breathing is one of those wonderful things which I do with my clients. And sometimes if I'm, if I'm in a one-to-one session and, and getting deep and someone's showing the cracks of their armor, then all I have to do is say, 
will you just do me a favor and just close your eyes? And, and then I guide them through a very gentle breathing process where I encourage them to bring their full focus attention onto their breath, which involves really focusing physically on your chest, on the rise and fall of your chest, feeling and I get them to put a hand on their tummy, on their feel their diaphragm, et cetera, et cetera. So I get them in touch with their soma. I, I, I'm, I'm encouraging somatic awareness. And as soon as, so many times, as soon as I do that, the flood, they can't hold back the floodgates open and they break apart in a lovely way and they release what they've been trying to stifle and stuff for either for that day or maybe for years. So the simple act of breathing, especially with your eyes closed, enables people and enables me to get right into the moment. And I love that. So, I mean, so many of my workshops, even seeing cl private clients in my house, I start sessions with three or four minute meditation just to get present. So breathing and conscious awareness. And I've done a, I did a transcendental meditation course many years ago. So I know a bit of TM. I practiced that. But the, the, the simplest thing, to, 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 the simplest answer really is what we can all do, which is truly breathe and, be, be, and learn to be in the moment. Mm, absolutely and it it is actually quite complicated well it's we make it complicated I truly believe because when we stop and breathe yeah like you say the floodgates open well and therein lies the difficulty because as soon as you do get present the and and, and assuming you're working on becoming sober and you've, you've put down your coping mechanisms well then guess what all those feelings that you've been successfully suppressing for a year, 10 years, five decades, however long it might be, they're going to come up and they don't feel good because the memories then get triggered. The implicit memories fire, the neurons fire that were the first fire when you were traumatized 10, 20, 30 years ago. And you relive, you're, you're, you're then, without even realizing it, reliving the traumas of your childhood in the present day and some part of your brain feels just as much terror as it did when you first experienced that trauma and that's where good therapy comes in and trauma therapy comes in you start to learn that that is only a feeling and a memory and it's not going to kill you and you're not being beaten or whipped or abused or hung off a building or whatever it might have happened to you in your in your childhood you're actually totally safe sitting with someone who actually really gives a shit so, yeah, I mean, it, it is scary. That's why breathing isn't easy. We do it every day subconsciously without thinking about it because we're thinking about something else. But when you think about it and get present, it can be bloody hard. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I can agree with you more. So let us, um, oh gosh, we've talked about so much and uh, we've covered so much. But what I'd really like to do now is to jump into the lightning round. Okay. Da, da, da. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mark, what would you say? Okay, and just to preface this, no thinking, no thinking allowed. Only intuition just coming right okay. off the bat here. Okay. What would you say are your superpowers? Empathy, gentleness, and softness. Mm. Oh yes, <laughs> vulnerability is the key to life. Love that. Intimacy is the most important thing for every human being to figure out for themselves, with themselves. Oh my gosh. A piece of music that changes the way you feel in your body. Easy. Now, now We Are Free by Lisa Gerrard. 
it's played at the end of the film Gladiator. It's very famous. Wow. Something people often get wrong about you, and I know you mentioned this earlier, forget I can re- I'll have to repeat myself, and that is that I, throughout most of my life, that I was this charming, upstanding, trustworthy citizen. And sadly, I wasn't, but I am now. and I really know and believe that. Hmm. Tell me one thing you love more than anything in the world. Two letters, M-E. Whoop! <laughs> Where can people find you on the internet? Um, my website. Uh, is, that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. Very easy. So all the W's dot my mentor dot uk dot com. So my mentor, M-Y-M-E-N-T-O-R dot uk dot com. Sadly, my mentor dot com was gone. I couldn't get that. Great job on getting that domain name. Just the British mentor. Yeah. Yeah. You had to flip the UK in there. And in, um, are you on Instagram, Mark? Fine enough. I'm not. And that's an active choice. I'm, I do do Facebook and I use it very sparingly these days for really for, for Rose, you've seen you've seen my Facebook post, so they're more spiritual, poignant, and sparing. Yeah, thank you. Yes. and I do, <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't do Instagram because I, I just I've had bad experiences with the internet in the past, so I limit it and I use it kindly and sparingly today. So I don't want to have too many accounts. I I do have a Twitter account, which I don't think I've used in about five years. So I don't even bother with that one. But uh, no, Facebook and and LinkedIn are my only two. And is it Mark Drax? Yeah, Facebook? You, yeah Mark Drax. Simple. Awesome. Awesome, so many new awesome. friends are coming it's, your way. <laughs> yes, a thousand new friends are coming your way. Mark, it's been such a delight <laughs> get to know you better i'm thrilled you're here for this conversation this important conversation where we have this kind of male perspective and um it's not that we haven't had a male perspective so far but just like your your intelligence and resourcefulness and specialty in this area is incredible and um yeah very grateful for this time and your time thank you so much 